0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the book of Hosea, chapter 8. I kind of wonder what any of us might do if God clearly and unequivocally told us that our worship of Him was not acceptable. It's not that we needed to improve upon what we do, rather He rejects our entire premise for it. In fact, our worship is so offensive to Him, it would be better if we offered none at all. And I dare say that such a thought today is unheard of. Modern Christianity seems to have settled on the notion that any form of worship of God is good enough, however meager, whatever form that pleases us. So is worship primarily a matter of how we conduct our rituals rituals and what we do in our religious services? Or is it perhaps the quantity, the intensity of our worship? In Hosea, the Lord says no to all these things. The issue is trust in Him. A correct trust that's guided by knowledge and by evidence. Trust in Him. This is measured not by the degree of warmth in our hearts, but rather by sincere obedience to His commandments, together with doing those commandments in the proper God-defined spirit of love and devotion. Now, Hosea shows us that worship in some other way than within the paradigm of what was biblically established at Mount Sinai is to reject God. Thus, in Hosea 8, verse 5, we find that because this is God's view, then the worship of the calf gods that Israel created, still insisting upon calling them Jehovah, caused him to reject Ephraim Israel in return. The cause of improper worship? Spelled out. Lack of understanding and knowledge. The prophet Isaiah writes a particularly poignant passage that gets right to the point about improper worship, which by its very nature is insulting to God. And it is downright idol worship. In Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 20, we read this. A carpenter takes his measurements, sketches the tape with a stylus, planes the wood. He checks it with calipers. Then he carves it into the shape of a man. And since it is honored like a man, well, of course, it has to live in a house. So he goes to chop down cedars. He takes an evergreen, an oak. He especially tends one tree in the forest. He plants a pine for the rain to nourish. And in time, when it's ready for use as fuel, he takes some of it to keep himself warm, and he burns some more to bake bread. Then he makes a god and he worships it. He carves it into an idol, and he falls down before it. So half of it he burns in the fire, and with that half he roasts meat and he eats his fill, and he warms himself and he says, Oh, it feels so good getting warm with while watching these flames. Now with the rest. The rest of the log, he fashions a God, a carved image. Then he falls down before it and he worships it and he prays to it. Save me, he says before, because you are my God. Such people know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are sealed shut so that they can't see Their hearts, too, so they can't understand. Not one thinks to himself or has the knowledge or the discernment to say, well, I burned half of it in the fire, baked bread on its coals, roasted meat and ate it. Should I now make the rest of it an abomination? Should I prostrate uh, prostrate myself to a tree trunk? He's relying on ashes, a deceived heart has led him astray, so that now he won't save himself, just won't say, this thing in my hand is a fraud. Yeah, that's Isaiah, folks. Pretty straight to the point. See, what's so striking about this passage is how Isaiah points out the absurdity of fashioning images of God and worshipping them. Believers, carving idols of wood and stone is not the only way to worship other gods. Simply by refusing to worship God in the only ways that He finds acceptable, then we must be worshipping a different god. Let's read Hosea chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Put the shofar to your lips, like a vulture he swoops down on the house of Adonai, because they have violated my covenant and sinned intentionally against my Torah. Will they cry out to me, We are Israel, God, we know you. Israel has thrown away what's good. The enemy will pursue him. They make kings, but without my authority. They appoint leaders, but without my knowledge. With their silver and gold, they make themselves idols, but these can lead only to their own destruction. Your calf, Shomron, Samaria, has been thrown away. My fury burns against them. How long will it take? until they are able to make themselves clean. Here is what Israel produces. A craftsman makes something, it's a non-god. The calf of Shamron will be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, so they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no ears, so it will yield no flour. And if it does yield any, foreigners will swallow it up. Israel swallowed up. Now they are among the goyim, among the Gentile nations, like a a vessel nobody wants. For they have gone up to Asher. Like a wild donkey, alone by itself, Ephraim has bargained for lovers. But even if they bargain among the Gentiles, now I will round them up. Soon they will start to feel the burden of these kings and leaders. For Ephraim keeps building altars for sin. Yes, altars are sinful for him, I write him so many things from my Torah, yet he considers them all foreign. They offer me sacrifices of flesh and eat them, but Adonai doesn't accept them. Now he will recall their crimes and punish their sins, they will return to Egypt. For Israel forgot his Maker and built palaces, and Judah made more fortified cities. But I will send fire on his cities, and it will consume their strongholds." Verse 6 mirrors the theme that we'll find in Isaiah 44 of the irrational thought of a human craftsman fashioning a god out of common materials. The logic is, how can a human make a god? And from Genesis 1-1 onward, the entire premise is, God makes humans. So let's take that logic a little farther. Since God makes humans, then who decides what rules humans are to live? throughout Israel's history, and I would argue throughout church history, this has been perhaps our biggest stumbling block. Traditions and doctrines that dominated Ephraim Israel, and now the church and the synagogue, are man-made rules that theoretically establish the directives we are to live by. I love the metaphor that Jehovah uses to describe this folly. He says, indeed, they sow wind, and they'll reap the whirlwind. In ancient times, farmers used the wind to sow seed. They would toss the seed into a gentle breeze, which had the effect of scattering more broadly, more evenly, more quickly. However, biblically, often the term wind, ruach in Hebrew, was used to speak of a foolish or worthless mindset, a behavior. So this clause employs both meanings. Israel used the typical seeding process, but what they sow is nonsense. And since nonsense is what's sowed, then what else can the product be when the seeds sprout and grow but a whirlwind? And see, we tend to think of whirlwinds as those interesting but harmless phenomena that occurs usually in the the deserts, dust devils, which are like little mini tornadoes that just suddenly spring up, do a little more than spin some dust and tumble tumbleweeds around, and vanish as quickly as they as they appeared. That's not the true sense of this Hebrew word, however. Sufa which is what's usually translated as whirlwind, speaks of a storm wind. This is something the farmers feared. It was destructive. So since Israel sows folly, then the produce that springs from it is going to be destruction. The verse concludes with, In Hosea 8.7, the standing grain has no ears, it will yield no flour, and if it does yield any, foreigners will swallow it up. Now, very simply, this is referring to famine. And if Jehovah causes the grain stalks to bear no grain heads, then there's nothing from which Israel can make their staple food bread. Now, this curse is followed by yet another curse that whatever little might be produced in the fields will be confiscated by foreigners. In other words, just as when Israel entered the Promised Land and profited from what their enemy, the Canaanites, had produced, so now Israel's enemy, Assyria, will profit from what Israel has produced. This entire scenario of a series of curses on Israel that are exactly what the covenant of Moses says is going to occur, should Israel break the terms of the covenant, is like a a, a reversal of their redemption history. Israel's collective bad behavior had begun long ago. Only now have the consequences borne their bad fruit. One other point I'd like to make. This is as a consequence not of Israel being being a mean or violent people. It is because for worshipers of God to participate in moral and religious turpitude brings with it a terrible price. Terrible. And we need to ponder this careful, carefully and and pretty soberly. To vow to be a God follower but to live an immoral life brings on calamity. Yet what happens when church leadership changes the very definitions of immoral behaviors? What of a believer in Yeshua cheating on a spouse? How about a believer denying their God-given gender or practicing homosexuality, conspiring to cheat others out of what is rightly due to them? Will our personal, individual redemption be reversed, as is happening to Israel, if we behave in such a way? Yes, obviously it can. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For when people have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become sharers in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of God's word, and the powers of the Olam Habah, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin, as long as for themselves they keep executing the Son of God on the stake all over again and keep holding Him up to public contempt. God puts up with a lot from us. He doesn't easily or quickly discard us, and instead He chides us to be better people, more obedient people. And He tries to guide us down a path to a more consistent faithfulness, often allowing us to suffer the inevitable results of our foolishness, hopefully without it ending in self-destruction, but also without Him withdrawing from us. Yet at some point in His eyes, we can be judged as a lost cause. Our claim of relationship with Him and faith in Him is proved false by our deeds, by our perverted worship, by our deceived minds, and this is how Ephraim Israel is being described. And no believer in Yeshua is above this same thing. Verse 8 declares that Ephraim, Israel, has turned itself into an unwanted vessel among the nations, meaning Gentile nations. What's an unwanted vessel? To understand the meaning through the eyes of an 8th century B.C. Israelite, what Jeremiah has to say using this same term can be helpful in Jeremiah 22, verses 28-30. through is this man Konial, a despised broken pot an instrument nobody wants why are they being thrown out why are he and his offspring thrown out into a country they don't know oh land 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 hear the word of adonai this is what adonai says list this man as childless he's a lifetime failure none of his offspring will succeed. None will sit on David's throne or rule again in Judah. Now, although the complete Jewish Bible says broken pot, the Hebrew word is the same as for vessel. So, a broken vessel is synonymous with an unwanted vessel, and it is something that is suitable for nothing but to be thrown out. Another way to get a fuller picture of the sense of this and it is a pretty serious condition that's being spoken of here, is that it is a term likely created as the opposite of the Hebrew expression keli hamda, that means a desirable or a costly possession. Something you value, you keep it at all cost. So a good rendering in modern English, might be Israel has now become among the Gentile nations something that is broken and thrown away. What a truly awful pronouncement of judgment. Now, what is the most recent cause, perhaps the final straw, for God to view Israel as worth nothing but to be thrown away? Verse 9 begins, for they have gone up to Asher. Now, Asher Is a synonym for Assyria. Asher is the God whose nation is Assyria. And calling a nation according to its national God, well, that was just common in the ancient Middle East. Israel approached Assyria and asked for their help to fight against Judah. This help was, of course, an alliance, and it brought with it cost on a number of levels. One cost was in Israel's treasure, money. Another was with a level of subservience to Assyria. A third was that such an alliance automatically brings with it the requirement of worshiping their gods. It's a total sellout against Jehovah. no matter Israel's excuse for doing it just so as to illustrate the abominable thing Israel did, I want to offer a modern-day example of it. Now, while it is unknown to most believers, large well-known Christian missionary organizations, as well as denominational missions groups, have poured major resources of money and people into an ongoing attempt to approach Muslims to convert them to Christianity. And it has been slow going, to say the least. And as a result, like many good intentions, this attempt has at times gone off the rails. And it's now common, although I fear it was very nearly the norm, to anoint a Muslim as a near-Christian if they simply acknowledge the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Which by the way is no great accomplishment since Islam in general has always acknowledged Jesus, but only as a great prophet. Now, Many years ago, I was asked by a substantial missionary group to read a pamphlet that they wanted to distribute by the scores of thousands to believers within their particular denomination, and I came to a section that made me almost nauseous. It explained that Christians should undertake to pray with Muslims because we all worship the same God. And further, that although the Muslims call their God Allah, in fact, they just don't know they were already worshiping Jesus. Salvation became watered down, such that a Muslim was counted as a Christian if they but agreed that Jesus lived and was a good man. This is a complete sell out to Yeshua and to his Father. It is the very definition of syncretism whereby pagan beliefs are remolded and reshaped and added to biblical truth. Certainly, this missionary group did not think they were doing anything wrong by printing this pamphlet. They saw it as the Great Commission and loving their neighbor. Through lack of knowledge, their true relationship with God was exposed. I have just described to you not only a very real incident in my life, but the Ephraim Israel of Hosea. And this missionary group, and perhaps the denomination they represented, was in some same danger of becoming a broken and unwanted vessel to God. See, this is only an example an example of where compromise and lack of knowledge can lead, and we need to, 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 to vow to avoid this at all costs. Well, as verse 9 continues, Hosea employs yet another metaphor. Israel is likened to a wild donkey, a wild ass, as it relates to their alliance with Assyria. Now, earlier in chapter 5, Hosea likened Israel to a silly dove with no mind. So, in both metaphors, the operative definition must be foolishness. Now, the Tanakh version says that they went up to court friendship. The Hebrew word that is usually translated to lovers or in the Tanakh is friendship is asabim. And uh, rather, ahabim, not asabim, ahabim. Okay. And indeed, it involves the idea of love. Yet here, of course, this doesn't mean it in the romantic sense or the erotic sense that Israel actually loved Assyria. Here's what the translators are struggling with. In Hebrew, even though the word Ahab or Ahab means love, it means it in a different sense than we moderns like to take it. In the ancient Hebrew, it meant more often than not, it meant love in a political sense. To love inherently carries with it the idea of alliance and allegiance. So for instance, to love a king does not mean warm feelings towards him. Therefore to love Assyria means a devotion of allegiance to them and nothing more. We can also see how the same word can be used in a more personal, relational sense, as in how we might use it towards a spouse. Because in God's eyes, love towards a spouse, while full of warm feelings, is supposed to be only the tip of the iceberg. The real connection happens when a full devotion of allegiance to that person results. In a personal, relational motif, then, we might call this faithfulness to a marriage partner. It's the context that tells us how to understand, how to apply meaning to the Hebrew word ahabim. Well, then in verse 10, speaking in Yehovah's name, Hosea relates the inevitable consequences of Ephraim's foolish attempt to contrive an alliance with the king of Assyria. says here, But even if they bargain among the goyim, among the Gentile nations, now I'll round them up, and soon they'll start to feel the burden of these kings and their leaders. Now the complete Jewish Bible leaves out a phrase there, however, that I think is important. The NAS includes it. Here's, Here's what I think is the more complete version of this verse. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes." What was left out was, they will begin to diminish. And although some translators think that the meaning of gathering them up is an end times prophecy of a return to the promised land. I see that view as taking something out of context. Clearly the gathering up is to assemble for judgment. Even in the end times, the uh, the whole idea of gathering up, of harvest if you would, is used in two senses. The first is to gather believers for a harvest of a lifetime relationship with God. The second is to gather non-believers for a judgment of eternal death. And while eternal death is not the use here in Hosea, it is most definitely speaking of a collective judgment against Israel. This gathering up is explained in the next phrase that says, as a result, Israel will diminish. This means they will diminish as a set-apart and identifiable people group, but also Numerically, they'll diminish. In Egypt, even under the burden of kings and princes, the Israelites' numbers grew. Why? Because God was with them. But in exile, as punishment, God is not with them. So their tribal populations will decrease into significance due to a number of reasons all the reasons however caused by god well verse 11 returns to jehovah criticizing israel's worship practices now <laughs> this verse is really a study of hebrew poetry structure and since our goal is not to become hebrew literary experts i'll merely say that the technique of repeating a word or a short phrase at two different points in a verse is recognized and given the lofty academic name of Epiphora. And in this case, it repeats the phrase, incur guilt, incur guilt. And in some ways, this verse represents an irony. From the Hebrew Biblical perspective, an altar was built for what? for burnt offerings to Jehovah to atone for the guilt that is caused by sins. However, Ephraim, using that same principle and no doubt attempting to accomplish that same thing, instead incurred guilt. Why? Because they built multiple altars everywhere they chose to instead of using the one and only approved altar at the temple in Jerusalem. Further, instead of being supervised by Levite priests, they were officiated, if at all, by what was in Biblical standards, layman. And to cap it all off, they used the same altars to sacrifice to Jehovah as they did to sacrifice to the Baal gods. This is a poisonous mix, to be sure. Verse 12 says, god says i write him so many things from my torah and he considers them foreign wow there's an entire sermon maybe there's two of them in this one passage the first thing to recognize is the phrase i write which is actually better translated as i wrote What did he write to the Israelites? The Torah. Now, your Bible may say law, which certainly isn't incorrect. However, the original Hebrew is Torah. The Torah indeed contains the law, but that's not all that's there. Nevertheless, Torah and law can be said to be, on a certain level, interchangeable. But we just don't want to take that too far. The reality is, that this is speaking of the Law of Moses, because it is there that the laws and commandments are contained. So the Israelites indeed had the Law of Moses at their disposal in written form, and yet they chose to see them as not for them, it was foreign to them, or they had lost all memory of them. Now I'm going to detour here, I'm going to inject something from a talk I gave to a seminary not too long ago, because the importance and effect of this short verse that we just read, 812, upon modern believers can be so easily overlooked or dismissed as not for us. The subject is the Law of Moses and how Christians should relate to it. I think a good way to approach this delicate subject is by asking what seems to be a simple question, who determines what is evil? Now, I want to approach this matter with logic as much as with biblical understanding. So, when we say, there is such a thing as evil, it is an admission that there necessarily must be such a thing as good. And when we accept that there is good apart from evil, we must also necessarily agree that good is based on a moral law system coming from some source of authority. Otherwise, there is no way to define good and evil and therefore to discern and differentiate between good and evil make sense so far it follows then that since there exists a moral law of good and evil there must be a moral law giver has to come from somewhere but who might this be Well, the Christian world claims to operate on the belief that the moral lawgiver is God and that He has given all mankind a common code of morality, but in actuality, does Christianity base its doctrines and conduct itself on that belief? Another critical element of the moral law code we must wrestle with is this. Is it an objective or a subjective law code? Well, the atheist philosopher, Louise Anthony writes, I take it that theists and atheists will agree about what it means to say that our morality is objective. First, whether something is right or wrong does not depend on any human being's attitude towards it. And second, moral facts are independent of the human will. Not much to disagree with there. Therefore as followers of Jesus, if we agree that by its very nature moral law is objective, and its source is an eternal, an unchanging God, then the laws of morality out of sheer necessity must be presented to humans coming from outside the sphere of humanity. And in a way that we can apprehend and apply, because it is rational for this physical universe we live in, and we have the capacity to sort through it in order to make decisions that revolve around this objective, non-human-originated moral law code. Even the question of what is a matter of morality, things we are obligated to do or obligated to not do versus what is a decision of our preferences, something in which we have choice to use our individual human wills and without any consequence. This can only be determined, which is which, by the lawgiver. So then as humans, how do we apprehend that moral law code from God, the lawgiver? so that we might follow it in obedience. How do we do it? Well, God seems to have imparted the knowledge of it in two steps. First step, after the Garden of Eden disgrace of Adam and Eve, was to give all humans an intrinsic sense within our souls that there exists this mysterious thing called morality. There is a universal right and wrong. Paul wrote about this mystery in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles do not have the law, but they do instinctively the things of the law, these not even having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the laws written in their hearts their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing, or else, defending them. This is what he's talking about. This is a statement that says all humanity has a natural, God-given sense of right and wrong. However, this sense of right and wrong proved too ethereal, too theoretical, to humanity and something more concrete was needed, interstep two, where the only written moral law code in the Holy Scriptures, the moral law code given to mankind by the lawgiver Yehovah was brought into existence. The law of Moses. See, here's where this line of thinking leads us for the remainder of our time together today that dangerous and pesky elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. Does the moral law code that God gave to Moses still matter? Does it have relevance, or even more pointedly, should it have any effect on the life of a Christian, especially a modern one, outside of salvation itself? I contend there is no more important question for the church, and for individual believers, to answer. And I'm going to tell you the story truthfully, and truth is rarely comfortable, I want this to be personal for each and every one of you, because it is. In order to get anywhere with what? I want to tell you, it's necessarily going to be that I have to make a few generalizations that while they apply apply broadly, that doesn't mean they apply universally, much the way really this is how a proverb works. So if I could oversimplify the mainstream Christian views on the law into a single general one, very general, it would be this. God's moral law code given to us through the law of Moses is not for any who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is their Savior. That's the general belief within the church. Now this is spoken of in a few ways in churches and Messianic synagogues, by the way, with perhaps the most familiar being that believers are no longer under the law statement that has been ascribed to Paul. Some of the more familiar ways this no longer under the law doctrine is explained is that the law was 100% abolished, demolished, and discarded by Christ, with it regularly said to have been nailed to the cross, or that the law was only a particular dispensation, one among several, that was meant to last only between the times of Moses and Messiah. Now, another thought uh, that more reflects the troubling but intellectually honest result about what a philosophy about the law necessarily leads us to is that essentially the New Testament revelation of Christ must have redefined sin and obedience—had to have in order for it to no longer be tied to an intrinsic and universal moral law, nor to the written moral law code we find in the Bible that was said to have been given to humans by God on a permanent basis, by the way. God never said it was temporary. He said it was forever. So. Sin can no longer have a universal meaning, effect, or standard. Therefore, sin and morality can be somewhat different for each individual, and it depends on how we feel in our hearts or our consciences, and usually ascribing this to the unique and highly individualistic workings of the Holy Spirit within us. That is, upon Yeshua's death, the moral law changed from being objective to being subjective. According to Christianity, where do we look in the Bible to understand then how Christians are to relate to the law? Primarily to the various epistles of Paul. Now, it's no secret that Paul does present a frustrating challenge on the issue of the law, as he seems to hold an utterly schizophrenic assessment of its place for believers by one time seeing, say, the law has no bearing on the life of a believer,s Believers are not under the law. And at another time, he venerates the law and says that a believer should uphold the law. Therefore, the law is holy, just, and good. We even find in chapter 21 of Acts that well after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul went to the temple. He participated in a vow ritual required by the law of Moses, specifically to publicly prove that he personally remained devoted to the law so the people would stop accusing him of instructing jews and gentiles that with faith in christ they didn't have to obey the law of moses any longer so was paul being hypocritical in his actions and merely succumbing to peer pressure when he was doing this Now, while Paul has always been controversial and challenging to decipher, yet there is much he says that is straightforward and consistent enough that it can help set the context for understanding where he's coming from in his dissertations that in time became the core of the New Testament and of church doctrine. For instance, I can say with confidence, that Paul believes that God sent Yeshua to bring salvation from sin to Jews and Gentiles alike, and that salvation is available to all on the same basis, faith in God, and that the Messiah is coming back sooner than later, and that Paul felt especially anointed by God to take the gospel of salvation to Gentiles, and that followers of Christ should live according to the Father's will will and His moral law. Yet we need to keep in mind something so many otherwise good Bible teachers and scholars seem to minimize. <laughs> Paul and Christ were Jews. The society they lived in, their upbringing, the religion they were taught, the terms they thought and spoke in were Jewish. Now, there are a handful of Christian academics who have made valiant attempts to deal with Paul and the law while trying to overcome long-held Christian doctrinal barriers. And the most recent academic that I personally believe offers a more balanced view is the venerable E.P. Sanders. Now, E.P. Sanders concludes that the real stumbling block is that Paul is actually speaking on several different aspects of the role of the law in the life of a believer, and they can't all be lumped together. That is, Paul did not usually speak about the law in broad terms, but rather he would address specific issues about the law one time, another but different specific issue about the law the next time, and I couldn't agree more with Dr. Sanders, and we find what we find is that Paul separated the issue of the Law down to two fundamental aspects as concerns believers. The first issue is how the Law relates to justification, salvation. The second issue is how the Law relates to our morality, which in turn dictates our behavior and our choices. That is the law as the expected expression of God's will for his worshipers. The first issue, salvation, justification, Paul presents as a spiritual matter expressed by our proper relationship with God, while the second issue, behavior, is more of a practical everyday life matter expressed by our proper actions, our proper relationships with people that indeed are governed by a moral law code. There exists a New Testament passage that definitively answers the two most basic questions believers have concerning the law. First, does it still exist for us? And second, if it does, are we obligated? abate. My position on this crucial matter is based on a clear, plainly stated instruction that appears about the midway point through Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, and besides its powerful and jarring clarity, what makes it so impactful is that the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's seminal speech to all of His followers. Jews and Gentiles, and it is a speech that Christianity has held up as essential to the proper understanding of our faith. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Indeed, I tell you that until, until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the torah not until everything that must happen has happened so whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the torah teachers and the pharisees you will certainly not even enter the kingdom of heaven Any questions? Because Christ's statement on the uninterrupted continuation of the law of Moses for those who believe in him directly contradicts most standard church doctrines on the law, I've had some students, teachers, and pastors try to solve the problem of Christ's statement by pointing towards his comment that it will pass away. When the heavens and earth pass away, insisting that the heavens and earth did pass away at the foot of the cross. And therefore, so did the law. I kid you not. And of course, they say they mean it from a spiritualized or an allegorized viewpoint. But far more often than that, their response to what Christ said is to argue, but yeah, here's what Paul said in Galatians or Romans or Corinthians or some other of his epistles. Now, I am then presented with a well-known statement or two of Paul's that indeed does seem to be quite negative about the law. And when I respond with a statement of Paul that seems to be quite positive about the law, then once again I'm opposed with yet another one that seems negative. And on and on we go until we reach a stalemate. I've searched for a long time for a new approach to this challenge, and I have one I want to share with you. But I think it just gets straight to the heart of the matter. We have at least one rather long, detailed statement by Christ about the law as concerns His followers, the one I just read to you, Matthew 5, 17-20, that is more than merely positive, it's unequivocal, And a forcefully stated instruction to us to never think, to never try to persuade anyone that he came to abolish the law. So, if one accepts the standard church doctrine that is ascribed to Paul, that Christ did abolish the law, then we're confronted with the obvious, aren't we? Paul and Christ disagree. That is, a dynamic is created which has Paul saying, Christ terminated the law, and Christ saying, no, I didn't. What are we going to do? Well, the mainstream institutional church long ago decided what to do. More weight is to be given to Paul than to Christ. So we're left with a serious personal dilemma? Are we to set Paul against Christ as regards the law for believers? And if that's the situation, do we follow Christ or do we follow Paul? Do we believe the Master or do we believe the disciple? Do we accept the inspired words of God in the flesh Or do we accept the inspired words of a common fleshly human? Paul. That said, I'm going to show you that Paul's occasional negativity was not anti, an anti-law view at all, but rather he was instructing against misuse of the purpose of the law. Paul was not anti-law. He did not teach believers to ignore the law, and especially did not teach that the law was dead and gone. Among his several statements to this effect, one of the most plainly spoken that remains definitive across all Bible versions is found in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 29, or is the God or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he is indeed the God of the Gentiles, because, as you will admit, God is one. Therefore, he will consider righteous the circumcised Jews on the ground of trusting and the uncircumcised Gentiles through that same trusting. Does it follow, then, that we abolish the Torah by this trusting? Heaven forbid! On the contrary, we confirm it. Uh Uh-oh. See, whatever else Paul might have to say about the law, what we find in Romans 3 is a key principle in Paul's understanding. It is that even though salvation comes only through faith, our faith in no way cancels the Torah, the law, which is God's moral law code. One doesn't nullify the other, one doesn't oppose the other, Paul emphasizes his contention using the strong Jewish expression, and let me tell you, it's a strong one, heaven forbid. I tell you, for a Jew, that wasn't far from swearing. Heaven forbid that such a thing might be. And he goes on further to say that, in fact, our faith in Christ affirms and upholds the law oh, what are you going to do about this, believers? How should we, as Jewish and Gentile believers, go forward in our lives and relate to the law of Moses? The law was given to Moses less as a strict rule book, more as a written-down structure of a paradigm, as how to be an obedient worshiper of God Almighty and to walk in His ways. What's a paradigm, you might ask? It's a model and it's a pattern explaining the underlying spirit while outlining the shape of something. The American Constitution created a paradigm for our particular system of government, specifying national liberties and laws within which our society must operate. Principles are established. Boundaries are created by taking the time to study the Torah and the Law of Moses contained within it, and to then draw a mental picture of it as more or less the believer's constitution. Then we can, with some effort and prayer and work of the Holy Spirit within us, transcend time and culture and bring obedience to the Law of Moses into the 21st century and beyond, thereby obeying Christ just as he instructed us. Only then will we have a true moral law code to go by. Ephraim Israel had set aside God's written moral code. They created their own. And they were in process of paying a terrible, consequence for it. And I would argue that beginning as early as the 3rd century, Christianity began to walk down this same path. Okay, we'll leave it here for today.